Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Better Words. Lovely to have you joining us today for a little book club chat. This one is actually going to be a bit of an interesting chat for me, I think, because I read this book in April. (laughs) Which is actually when it came out, so congrats to you for reading it when it came out because I won a lovely advanced copy of this from... Quercus in the UK and I kept meaning to read it and then uni and then this podcast things got in the way and I did not read it until the past weekend so (laughs) I left it very late but I'm very glad that I did read it so yes I know that it is like a little bit of a more distant memory for you but hopefully as we chat it will jog your mind and you'll still be able to share lots of feelings about it yes I think so once we get into it and we haven't actually said the name of the book yet the book that we're discussing in this mini book club chat this week is The Switch by Beth O'Leary which was a highly anticipated second novel from um, Beth O'Leary her first novel The Flat Share was just a mega success, incredible, like insanely successful, hundreds of thousands of copies sold worldwide and a lot of love as well for the flat share. So the switch, obviously very highly anticipated. And I think some people may have been a little bit disappointed in certain bits of it because they were expecting maybe more of a romance focus, but you know, for me, I'm not much of a romance reader. So I think I actually preferred The Switch because for reasons we will get into in this chat, it's a beautiful novel. I mean, anyone who enjoys just contemporary character-driven fiction, you'll love this book. Yeah, absolutely. So The Switch uh, follows Lena and Eileen, a granddaughter and grandmother duo who decide to swap lives for a little bit and have a bit of a break and a bit of an adventure from their own world it's kind of like freaky friday but without the body swap bit because they just are like literally they just swap their lives and obviously with that comes the whole you walk a mile in someone else's shoes you will learn a lot so they learn a lot about each other they learn a lot about themselves and you know what it is actually like which I just thought of this because I keep seeing this movie on Netflix and I go, it's a Christmas movie. Wait to watch it until Christmas. But isn't it the holiday when the Cameron Diaz character and the I think it's Kate Winslet actually just like swap houses? That's what this is yeah. like. Okay. Yes. It's like, I don't know why, why, why did I think Freaky Friday? You know why I thought Freaky Friday was because of the whole like, oh, it's made me realize more empathetic about, you know, another person yeah. because... So it's like, a, it's like a switch between Freaky Friday because they've got a relationship already and the holiday where it's two strangers swapping yes, lives. Exactly. It's like a mesh. Way, yeah, it's like a mesh yeah. of those two. Yeah, that's the perfect way to describe it. It's, it's really, it's 
so it's so it's very very sweet but to give some background for some stuff that we're going to talk about that um you know it's not it's not a spoiler because it's very early on in the novel about a year before the novel starts lena's sister carla passes away from cancer and it's left a big hole in her family obviously but it's also caused this rift between lena and her mum and lena's still very very close with her grandmother eileen but she has this argument with her mother and is finding it very hard to move past that now her mother and eileen live in the same village in the yorkshire dales which is a beautiful beautiful part of the world and i love it so much um so i can picture that instantly so they live in that village so when they swap lives um lena is obviously put in the same small village as her mother and has to necessarily confront some of the big feelings and the grief that she's had about losing her sister and I think for me that's what maybe made this book even more I I know there were other issues in the flat share it wasn't just a pure romance but I think for me that whole complex element of family relationships and stuff is probably what made me fall in love with the switch a little bit more because it's more of the type of book I usually read anyway does that make sense yeah it does I really liked the glimpses into each other's life that they had you know like as Lena was you know in this small village you know her grandmother was like in the neighborhood watch so then she was going to the meetings and hanging out with all of her grandma's friends and and vice versa, Eileen in London is now living with Lena's roommates um, in their apartment building, hang, you know, seeing her neighbours and everything like that. And I just, they really dropped into each other's lives in such a sweet way. Yeah. And then like all of Lena's friends love, you know, they call her Mrs. Cotton because obviously that's her name, but they, they don't call her Eileen as much. So it's always like, oh, Mrs. C, you have to do this. And like, it's just like love. From them like you can see that she becomes this maternal figure to yeah. those people who are friends with Lena um so something that we should talk about one of my favorite elements of this book is the fact that Eileen Mrs C when she goes to London she wants to have a bit of a fling she wants to get back on the romance scene because again for context her husband left her for the ballroom dancing instructor and she's she's very pragmatic about it. When we meet her at the start of the novel, she's literally making a list of the eligible men in her village and their pros and their cons. And there are only about three. And she's like, oh, you know, he's probably like, you know, too, he'll he'll be too religious. And oh, he's a, he's he's nice, but he's a bit of a bigot. Um, and you know, he supported Brexit and stuff like that. There's all these funny little things on her list. She's trying to convince herself which of these men she should go for. And that's part of the reason as well. Lena's like, why don't you just go to London? Yeah. She's like, the dating pool is too small out here. Yeah, exactly. So she's like, just go to London. Um, They get her internet dating and she meets this man, an actor from the West End. um, And he basically says right at the start of the date. And again, this is not a spoiler. This is very early setup stuff that he basically is like, you know what? I would like to take you to bed, Eileen Cotton. And off to bed they go and their fling commences. But what I love is just we never, 
really see in movies or in books, um, you know, this sex positivity about an older woman having a relationship with a man her age then like sometimes it'll be represented but it's like oh the toy boy or that sort of thing yeah. but it's like no, this is just an older woman enjoying uh you know casual sexual relationship with an older man and that it feels like it never gets represented and I just love the way that Beth O'Leary approaches it because it's so fun and it's it's not done in a sleazy way it's not done in a Ha <laughs> the oldies are having sex way it's no. really tender and beautiful and oh, I loved it and not even in a way really that obviously because also characters in the novel are Eileen's daughter and then her granddaughter Lena and they're both all for it yes but also it's very funny there are conversations where like you know Eileen is is talking to Lena's best friend about her sex life and everything and and she's like, oh, I don't, I can't share this with my granddaughter. And then, you know, like she will be talking to Lena and he's like, oh my God, I don't want to hear about you having sex. Oh, but I just <laughs> think that's so funny about the fact that like Lena's best friend is also becoming Eileen's, you know, best friend on the dating scene. Cause Lena's yeah. best friend is also single. So they sort of compare and match make with each other and help each other out. And it's, it's just, oh, it's just such a delightful uplifting fun novel and like I wish that you guys listening could see our faces because we're just smiling the whole way through remembering (laughs) this book it's so sweet and lovely and I think for me at the moment in the UK things are very uncertain and very sort of weird and scary times again it's basically like we were pre-lockdown in March very uncertain and when I was reading this it was such a nice escape to read something fun and light and not serious but it deals with serious topics but it's not a heavy book and it's just it's delightful yeah totally I know I think that's probably exactly how I felt when I read it in April again similar timing of things going wrong and it's it's such a nice novel to escape into you know it's something else that I wanted to touch on that I was talking about with a friend when I I gave her my copy of the book um, the other day and I said something that's interesting in it is we often look at people who've been married a long time and think oh my god that's amazing what an achievement Um, they must be so in love and we sort of romanticize those decades long relationships but I think and I don't want to go into too much detail here because it would lead into spoiler territory but I think there's certain relationships in the book are sort of shown for maybe being, you know, marriages of convenience or things where potentially now as, you know, very modern women, we might not put up with that and we might get a divorce or leave or whatever. Um, And I think it's just very interesting the way that she quite carefully sort of makes us rethink that trope that we have of, oh my God, they've they've been married 50 years, they must be so in love. Whereas part of, you know, Eileen talks about how she maybe got married for convenience or because she was pregnant and it was the right thing to do and it maybe wasn't the best thing for her. Whereas now I think as young women, we prioritise so much more like love and we really want to make sure this is the right decision and things like that. And we forget that way back when it might have been more of a social issue 
And of course, I'm not saying that there aren't people who get married and stay in love for 50 years. And I know that there are people who have beautiful relationships and stuff like that. But I think it's just another interesting thing that I I thought after reading this book was, oh, yeah, sometimes it's not all as it seems, obviously, which we talk about a lot on. And actually, it's something we're going to talk about in the interview today as well with like marriages and all not being picture perfect but it's always a nice reminder really yeah absolutely and I think it is an interesting thing that is kind of what is the word like explored now looking back on some of these relationships that you know especially for women Eileen's age that like potentially because so much social change has happened in their life to think you know if I met my husband now and I was 20 would I marry him you know it's just it's such a different time it's impossible to say but it is a really interesting thing to this to explore and discuss yeah and it is tied in with the reason Eileen goes to London too because I think in the novel they talk about the fact that she was meant to when she was 20 or something like that and and she found out she was pregnant and stuff and you know she sort of says like I wouldn't change my life I, I love my children. I, you know, I've had a wonderful life, but it is interesting. But she and never really got that like young adult, like sort of in between time. Yeah. And the time to go and explore London and decide if yeah, that was you know, the thing she wanted to do. So I think it's, it's beautiful to see her do that in the novel as well. And I just have so much love for Eileen and Lena and all the characters because there are so many and one of my favorites is Arnold the grumpy old man next door I loved him and I just love Lena often describes him in the book as like she's his donkey and he's Shrek and she's like helping him change his life and it's just (laughs) it's so sweet sweet. but I could just picture him so clearly as like this grumpy old man with like a flat cap and yeah it just I know right my god as we mentioned before this one isn't really as much of a romance as the flat share was that one was a lot more romance focused but as we've already discussed there are a lot of interesting relationships in the switch and one that I actually wish we got a bit more from was Lena and Jonathan the local school teacher I always want to call him like the local school teacher in the small village yeah yeah, we won't say any more about that, but yeah, that is, it is something I wish we had like a tiny, a tiny bit more of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, in short, you can probably tell we bloody love this book. It's really delightful. And I think if you're going through a time where you're feeling like you just want to read something fun and uplifting, then this is great. If you have already read The Switch, um, then please send us a dm let's have a chat about it and how great it is and let us know because yeah we we love talking about this book and i'm also really excited for beth o'leary's next novel as well which i think from memory is called the road trip and i think beth o'leary is obviously really building a name for herself as an author who writes really lovely uplifting beautiful books the novel that we're going to discuss today in our interview is not quite as uh, fun and uplifting as this but it is nonetheless a brilliant and moving book 
and we had a lot of fun chatting to Louise O'Neill. So enjoy this interview. Ireland is a land known for its literary exports and our guest this week is certainly adding to the country's reputation for absolutely impeccable fiction. Our guest is from West Cork and has been described as a feminist powerhouse. Her first two novels were written for young adults but tackled very tough topics including sexual assault and consent and had rave reviews. Her books have won multiple awards and been bestsellers on the Irish fiction charts. Her latest novel, um, which is her second adult fiction after The Silence, was published on September 3rd. And at the time we're recording this, it's been out just a week and is already at number two in the Irish bestseller charts. We are absolutely delighted to welcome you, Louise O'Neill, to Better Words. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is wonderful. We were just saying before we hit record that we love an Irish accent as Aussies. So it's wonderful to be able to have you with us today. I'm just gonna, I'm have to, gonna have to pay attention though, otherwise I'll just get lost in your lovely accent. Oh God! And especially since this is a podcast and there won't be any subtitles, so I will have to make sure that I speak, you know, slowly and clearly. You know, my elocution classes from school will have to come into place. <laughs> uh, well, I was also saying before uh, that I really loved After the Silence, and it's really really brilliant I'm only sorry we can't sit and talk about all your novels because I feel like in each novel you write there's so much to unpack but we are going to talk today mainly about After the Silence which has just been released and it's a really gripping atmospheric and very emotional novel Um, but I'll be honest even though I loved it I struggled to explain to people in a way that encapsulates everything that you cover in it so I think it's best to just ask you to please describe after the silence. Okay, I'll give the the sort of the elevator pitch. Um, So it's set on a small island off the coast of West Cork, um, which is called Inishroon. Um, And this very glamorous, wealthy family, the Kinsellas, have set up a world-renowned artist retreat centre there. Um, And the youngest Kinsella son, Henry, has married a local woman called Keelan. And it's at her 36th birthday party, this violent storm engulfs the island, cutting them off from the mainland. Um, And the next morning, the body of a young woman is found. No one can get on the island. No one can get off the island. So it has to have been someone here that did it. And then 10 years later, a team of documentary makers from Australia um, arrived in a shroom, determined to figure out exactly what happened that night. Um, So I kind of say it's like the Virgin Suicides meets making a murderer with like a little bit of big little lies um, thrown in there. So I have the Australian um, influence there again. Yeah, that reference there. Was ex- trying to explain it to me. She didn't do it as well as you did. Um, <laughs> did a terrible job. I think the thing that she got a little bit caught on was genre. What genre mm. would you say after the silence is, and mm. or mixed of genres? I mean, I think it's. I think it's like it's primarily a psychological thriller um and it's interesting because 
you know, all of my novels have been different genres. You know, uh, the first novel was dystopian and the next two were contemporary. And then I wrote a fantasy retelling of The Little Mermaid. So I'm not necessarily, I think, confined by the idea of genre. Um, to me, it's like, OK, I have an idea for the story and what is the best way to tell the story? And I think it became pretty clear early on with After the Silence, you know, which is this novel about secrets and the lies that we tell ourselves and others in order to survive I think I was like oh this is going to be a psychological thriller and it's funny because it's actually not a genre that I've ever been really drawn to like I, I haven't I hadn't read a lot of it um, and I hadn't watched a lot of true crime which is obviously a big part of this as well um, but I think over the last couple of years there's just been like these amazing female authors who have been using psychological thrillers, I think, as a vehicle to discuss themes that impact women. And I remember a friend who loves these books says that the bad ones, you know, should use women um, and our bodies um, as plot devices. And she said the good ones understand how fear drives so much of our lives and I think uses this kind of violence against us in a way to explore that fear. Um, and I suppose, you know, there's people like, you know, as I mentioned, Leanne Moriarty with Big Little Lies and Erin Kelly and he said, she said was, you know, dealing with rape culture and uh, like Tana French, who's another Irish author is really, really smart with this. And Megan Abbott is incredible. Um, so I think because of that, I don't know, it just seemed like something I thought, oh, this would actually be a really good fit for me in that, I've always seen myself as quite a commercial writer and with a psychological thriller, pacing is so important and making sure that it's gripping and that, you know, you're, it's a page turner and you want to find out what happens at the end. So yes, I think if I was going to, you know, try and define it, I mean, I, I would say primarily it is a psychological thriller. And then I suppose as a writer, you know, there are themes and kind of motifs that you come back to time and time again. Um, so for me, even though the story always comes first um, and I did, I suppose I did say, OK, well, there are certain aspects of being a woman and navigating the world in a female body that I really want to use this book to explore, but not at the like not not at the sacrifices of, of the story, if you know what I mean. So After the Silence is your fifth novel and you mm. have said that it might be your favourite. So yes. why is this one so special? Um, it's funny because you're not like it's it's kind of bad form to say that about one of your books. You know, you're nearly afraid. Yeah, the other ones will get jealous, you know. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I think it was it was interesting. I think in a way when I was writing it, um, it's the first novel, you know, that I've written where the main character is older than I am. Uh, Keelan is 46 for most of the novel. She is married. She has two children, um, which are all, you know, experiences that I, I haven't had. Um, and because of that, I think there was maybe an emotional distance um, between me and the book, even though it deals with quite dark themes. Um, so I was able to enjoy writing it in a way that maybe with some of my previous books, which really felt like I was almost mining some of my own trauma, not necessarily like to write the books, but to inform the books. Um, and because of, I was not doing that with this novel because, um, you know, it, it deals with themes like 
um, coercive control and, and domestic violence, which I don't have any personal experience with. Um, so I think there there was just that like level of like emotional distance. Um, and I don't know, it just felt like a really good fit for me. I just felt like, again, I think, you know, let's say particularly in a book like um, Only Ever Yours, which was my first novel, where you're kind of figuring, the reader is figuring out as you go along, you know, what is this world and who are these characters and what secrets are these people keeping? And actually, when I look at that now, there are elements of like what we would consider a thriller, even though that novel is dystopian and isn't, you know, traditionally sort of psychological thriller so I think it just felt like a good fit where I was using this device as a way of looking at a theme or some or a topic that I thought was important yeah definitely and I think there are probably elements of that too in like something like asking for it where there is a, a crime or something that takes place and there is a bit of a this this mystery around what will happen with that yeah you know? and as I mentioned before, like one of the reasons I struggled to describe the book as a thriller is because there is this chilling exploration of different types of abusive relationships. And you touched on that just there, like they're not um, always obviously violent. Uh, mm. One of the relationships in the book is, but then one from the outside is, you know, picture perfect and you have elements in there where, um, people say, oh, you must be so lucky and look at what he puts on Facebook. He dotes on you, all this sort of stuff. Um, but there are things that happen that are so scary and I found so chilling. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that you portrayed things like uh, the way that Henry will correct Colleen's memory of things or the phone passcode, like I mm-hmm. found that really like just gave me chills more than mm-hmm. any of the Uh, descriptions of violence Mm. so obviously you mentioned before coercive control um, and there's also this discussion about learned helplessness and you know as a reader there were times early in the novel where uh, Henry would say oh no no you said this and I'd think is that what I read I I can't remember and I would feel like maybe I was being gaslit a bit Mm. um and I, I think it's really interesting the way that you wrote that to not be so obvious, but just sort of by the end, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here now. Um, why did you want to explore it in that? I guess it's, it is a little bit more subtle without being subtle. I don't know how exactly to describe it, but why was that the way you wanted to approach the topic? Well, firstly, I think that sometimes the, the problem a lot of the time when we're discussing issues like this is I I was particularly with something like emotional abuse, because I think that we've got to a point as a society where we really understand that physical violence is wrong. You know, we, we, we're not as likely to sort of dismiss that as a private family matter, or, you know, we're like, no, no, you cannot talk to or treat people like this. Um, Whereas I think the problem with something like coercive control which is defined as a persistent pattern of controlling or threatening behavior, which can be emotional, it can be physical, but it can also be sexual, it can be financial. Um, I think that we're we're really not, we don't have the same sort of understanding around that. Um, and because it can be so subtle, because it can be so insidious, that even from the outside looking in, we might think, oh, that's a bit odd but look if it works for them you know everyone's relationship is different and actually I suppose the the main problem is that for the person in the relationship who is experiencing this kind of manipulation it's very difficult to even identify that as abuse because you know there are no bruises there are no broken bones um 
and so often it's sort of disguised as love or concern um and i think one of the main problems is is that it can become it's so insidious that the, the victim can become further and further isolated and more and more dependent on their abuser, particularly if they're being gaslit where, you know, that they feel like they're losing their, their grasp on reality or they can't trust their own instincts or their own, um, I suppose, memory of what of something that's happened. And the more that that happens, the more that they turn to their abuser as the only person that they can they can trust. Um, and it's been interesting. I think the reason why in the book that you have to make it subtle is that if you go in and you like, you know, cause some of the examples that I heard were so egregious that if I put those in a book, a reader wouldn't believe it. And actually that's what's so frightening about it. Or they would think what's wrong with Keelan? Like, why doesn't she see this for what it is? So actually you have to, I think, drip free, feed it for the reader. You have to like build it up really slowly so that they get a sense of what it would be like to be in that relationship for, the, for them to get a sense of like how gradually something like this could happen. And I suppose how slow, how steady, um, and how, as I said, how insidious um, it is. Because I think one of the biggest misconceptions a lot of the time when it comes to abuse is that we say, well, that would never happen to me. Um, and I know that even when I spoke to survivors, you know, I was almost looking for patterns. You know, I was asking questions like, well, you know, did you grow up in an abusive household? Or, you know, like, did you see this as a child? And And actually, I think what was really interesting was the disparity and the answers that many of them had grown up in very loving, like warm households where their parents had this wonderful relationship. And in a way that actually made them even more vulnerable to this because they didn't recognize it. And and these the abusers are so good at what they do that actually the frightening thing is, is that they could do this to anyone if they were given enough of a of an opportunity, you know, that they could manipulate anyone into something like this. And I think it's really important that, that we're aware of that because number one, it makes us safer because we, I suppose, are more aware of the warning signs. Number two, it makes us less judgmental because we don't ask questions like, well, why would you put up with that? And for God's sake, like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't tolerate that. And thirdly, it removes a layer of shame because at the moment victims feel I think embarrassed, you know, because the the rhetoric around this is so much of the responsibility and the blame is being placed upon, you know, the victims. Um, why don't they leave? Why do they stay? And I think that again is an obstacle in the way of leaving because you're too ashamed to tell anyone what exactly is happening to you. And that certainly happens with Colleen as well because she's had this training. She's worked with victims and she has been in an abusive relationship before so it's almost like this double shame of like well you should definitely know better because you've had all the training and you do talk about that shame in such an interesting way where she sort of says you know she pushes her friends away because she doesn't want them to see that this has happened to her and she doesn't want them to know um so I do think it's very clever the way that that's explored in a way that like you say makes it so much easier for us to see how it could happen to anyone 
it's not what we traditionally think of or have been taught to think of as abuse. I do think, I mean, you know, there was a lot of conversation in Ireland um, before I started writing this because, you know, people who are working in charity, this, this sector and who were working with, refu- you know, um, refugees were, um, I think, trying to really push for legislation that would make coercive control legal. And they did in 2019. I think we had our first conviction for it in 2020. But it's still like a very new sort of topic. And there's, I think people really don't quite understand um, what this means. Because as I said, you know, if you had a friend who said, oh, look, my husband just takes care of the finances. So like, you know, my wages go into his account and it's just that I'm really bad with money and he's really good at money. Like, perhaps you might go, okay. And like, I suppose the scary thing is, is that that mightn't always be an indication of an abusive relationship, but it could be. And I think that's the problem is, is that it's so difficult to sort of understand and define, um, as I said, not just for people looking in, if you're a friend, of, if it's your friend, but also for the person themselves. In the book, um, it starts, the, the whole reading her messages and stuff starts with her, her genuinely being trolled and her being in this horrible situation. And he says, well, I'll read them first and or like I'll delete all of that so you don't have to see those horrible messages and you think oh that's yeah like that's fine that's what I would I would want someone to do that but then it's the way that it just sneakily gives more it escalates yeah and I think what's interesting about that is that you know I'm 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 never that interested in sort of clear-cut answers you know like I was like I want to make Keelan sort of complicit in this you know or or to the reader that she seems like she's complicit in it or that you know that she you know in the beginning as you said was like you know I need to lose a bit of weight will you tell me like if you see me eating a biscuit knock it out of my hand you know those kind of jokes that you make like to a partner um and as you said the thing about and and, you know even with money and with things like that that you know at the beginning like she is the one who's asking Henry um to help her with this you know and I suppose She's she's so vulnerable. And I think that we see that with both times with Keelan, that every time that she's gotten into a relationship with someone who turns out to be an abuser, she's at a particularly vulnerable um, just stage in her life. Um, and I think that's actually very true of victims. Like you, you do see that, that it's not necessarily that they might have had a history of abuse, but they might say, oh, um, a friend had died or, or you know, or I, I had just moved or, you know, the way that so there's that kind of level of, as I said, vulnerability. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that true crime obviously plays a part in this case. And I've seen you talk about After the Silence being partly inspired by a very high profile case from West Cork. I couldn't help but ask about it because I've written a true crime podcast. And so I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I love that this is what inspired the book. So can you tell us a little bit more about the case and and why that stayed with you? Because it happened when you were quite young. Yes. I mean, the book isn't necessarily inspired by the case itself, but more about the more by the true crime um, podcast that came out of it but um, the case is one of Ireland's kind of most notorious unsolved murders Um, Sophie Toscan de Plantier who was this French woman who was um, living or had a holiday home in a very small village in West Cork called Skull Um, and she was she came here in Christmas um, 1996 and she was murdered um, on the 23rd of December and it was just, I mean, I was 11 when it happened and it was really shocking. I mean, I can't even really explain 
how shocking it was because I think when you grow up in an area like this where it's so safe um, and no one locks their doors well no one locked their doors then and you know the, just the idea of crime was just non-existent you know we were given this incredible freedom um, as children because our safety was just assumed um, and I suppose to, to, to feel like that darkness was encroaching um, upon us in this way uh, was very unsettling as a child and I suppose when the when the West Cork podcast which was this 13 part audible series that um, was released in 2018 um, I mean I just I binged all 13 episodes in like a day um, and I think there was a part of me that really hoped that these journalists by the end of it would have solved the crime, you know, that they would have found some detail that the guards hadn't found. And of course, you know, true life or real life is not, you know, tied up quite as neatly as things are um, in fiction. And I suppose afterwards, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about those two documentary makers. You know, I said, coming in to an area like West Cork, you know, with their English accents and asking questions and trying to uncover secrets that, I know some people don't want to be uncovered. Um, it just, it was fascinating. It was just genuinely fascinating. And I think what it said about Ireland and, and the, the sort of post-colonial resentment um, of the English and all of that, it just, it seemed to me just rife for like uh, creative exploration. Um, and I think that was what inspired the idea of these two documentary makers coming uh, to a small, closely knit um, community. But I didn't want to make them English because to be honest, I mean, I suppose I didn't want to draw, you know, this isn't, this isn't anything to do with that particular case. Like the cases themselves are so different. Um, so, and I, I just thought, you know what, I won't have them be English. Um, and I was like, I'll have them be Australian. Um, and I have family uh, who live in Sydney. So my my aunt and my uncle-in-law, my two first cousins. Um, so I just thought oh, it would be a nice little nod um, to them if I have uh, if I have them be Australian. I quite like it actually, because they're, you know, that idea of these two outsiders coming to a small town and figuring out what happened years ago. Mm. if they're Australian like it's even further away like how do they, they get I there know. I know and I think I just I kept thinking I was like well where would they have heard it and I was like well one of them would have to have like I suppose like my own cousins you know that they would have had to have uh Irish roots you know so I said okay one of them's going to be it's going to be half Irish and I think I also wanted the idea of I suppose them being other you know um and you know again it's that idea of I suppose what what does it mean to be other um and I think when you grow up somewhere like this um you know it, it wasn't something I really experienced I mean I felt like an outsider in many ways because I felt kind of different but I think when I I first moved to Dublin and then I'm you know I lived in New York and I think that when you live some when you live away particularly if you brought up somewhere like you know my father owns a butcher shop that like has been in my family since 1909 you know I, I I just moved into like my own little place and my parents gave me um this fireplace that 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 they that has been th gone through our family like for over 200 years like you know and it's just so I think when you have that like real sense of like this is who I am this is my history this these are my people which can be very I suppose stifling in its own way like you know I was really anxious to get away from that but then I think when you move to a really large city and you have just this complete sense of like anonymity which was really freeing but then also you realize god you know if I like fell into this like in front of this subway train like who would care here you know and um, so I think that there's kind of these these pros and cons with it um and I think when you that sensation of being other and the 
I think the way that that made me look at my own identity and my own Irishness, um, I think that it's such an interesting experience. And I was like, these two Australian makers, and you know, one of them is um, of Vietnamese descent, um, and uh, the other one is is half Irish. Um, but you know, I think it, it is just to give that sense of like them almost being like aliens, you know, landing in from Australia on this tiny, tiny little island, you know, just and like to me, Australia is I suppose, the farthest away that you could just possibly imagine, you know. So it's like, yeah, they're gonna be Australian. Close. Yeah. Yeah. It is a it is a very long way to fly. Having gone from like central Queensland in oh. Australia, all like we went all the way to Dublin. That was like four flights. And I it know. Was, it's oh, crazy. It's funny because I I haven't been to um, Australia in years now. Um, but I yeah I still remember that flight. It was like oh Jesus. But like, and I also what I also found really funny when I was there was I suppose it's such a massive country. You know, like this you can't really understand the scale of things. You know, when you're standing on a beach and you're like, how long is this beach? Like it's just it's going on forever and ever. <laughs> and like when my aunt comes home, she's like, oh I'm going to Dublin today. And we're, we just think like, you know, you'd need to go to Dublin and you like, you know, you'd need to be there for a week in order to kind of get over the journey. But it's like, it's three and a half hours up the road. So to her, that is nothing. She's like, just heading off to Dublin for like, I might get us some tea like for lunch. What are you doing? So it's just, I think the scale of like <laughs> Ireland versus Australia is always just very funny. On Australia, um, Louise, you did say to us before we were recording about your Australian family and how they helped a little bit with some Aussie slang and things like that. So what are your favourite Aussie slang words? Oh, my God, I'd have to. I actually, you know what? I'm just going to see if I have it here now because he sent me so much. I'm just trying to see if I, yeah, oh, my God, it was like an entire list. I'm trying to see if I have it here now. Oh, I really hope I can find it. Sorry, we obviously text each other quite a lot. Um, oh yeah, so I love the the yana and the na yeah, which I swear to God I found so confusing, and I had to keep looking back to it and go, okay, well, I really hope I've got this right. And he was like, okay, you use it for this and you use it for this, um, and then I never say good day unless it's ironic, but older people do it, I guess. And then it was just like loads of things that he was like, there were so many words for drunk, there's so many words for this, and a, a bottle liquor shop is called a bottle. Of, like it was just really funny. He was going into um just like all of these like he was like genuinely I'm just saying here now he had 25 different phrases and that it was brilliant he was so helpful so there was loads of things that I thought oh that's really funny and I loved when he said oh you know like you know the word cunt which isn't really a big deal here either but I, I know that from you know friends of mine who are Australian or from New Zealand that it's like we is used quite commonly and I just thought yeah I don't know if I put that in that they're just calling each other cunt will will, will people be reading it saying oh my god this is shocking you know um, but I do know it's a much more casual sort of like uh turn of phrase so that it was is funny. much more casual here and it is one of those things that always in like particularly like American tv shows and movies where it's like such a huge deal whenever anyone says that word and here it's so common you know what people have picked me up on over here is uh the way that we just casual things like saying heaps a lot Mm -hmm. apparently we say that a lot um and then the other one that I notice I say a hundred percent a lot so if I'm agreeing like yeah Yeah, hundred percent oh now I wish I put that in the book I'm like damn it I should have talked to you beforehand. Yeah, exactly. The next time I'm in Australia, they'll just be like, heaps and 100%. That'll be their two things. Um, So apart from, you know, Australian accents, that's a lot of fun. Um, We would also love to talk to you a bit about your granny, Murphy, 
who you've dedicated after the silence to saying she was so so loved would you like to tell us a little bit about her and your relationship yeah of course I mean do you know my my mother my parents were young you know having us they were young getting married and my dad was still traveling a bit he was playing um Gaelic football um in uh New York so he was traveling a bit back and forth um and my mom would go with him occasionally um so I think they were very lucky um in that my grandparents who were also at the time young do you know that they, they had had my parents young and or, or my mother young and then um they had us young so they would have yeah you know that kind of which I mean I'm 35 and my sister's 37 and neither of us have kids so like if we do it's we're definitely going to be bucking the trend of like having children at 22 you know um yeah so I suppose they they just used to drop us over to my grandparents house which was this farmhouse um and we called it over home um and uh so you know we would have spent like most of our summer holidays there, uh, every weekend there, you know, it was just, I think it was, it was really, it was like a second home and they have reared us, you know, and like, I think it was just really interesting because it was this complete division in that our lives in Clonakilty, which was this town, um, I suppose were quite typical of like 90s kids, you know, like, you know, watching TV and playing with our Tamagotchis and, you know, begging for Skechers and Baby G watches and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and then in Rarara, which is where my grandparents um, lived, it was just very, you know, there was two channels on the television and my, oh, actually, it's so funny talking to you because we used to be dying to watch Home and Away, obviously, you know, and my granddad <laughs> um, would would always watch the news at six. And Home and Away was on at half six. So you'd just be like, come on. And it, I would say, but you watched it at like one. Like nothing has changed. The news <laughs> is the same. And we were like, we have to watch Home and Away. And he was just like, no. Um, so it was a much more like traditional uh, saying prayers before we went to bed and, you know, rounds of the rosary. And like just things that just were not part of our lives Um with my parents in Clannacilty. So we were just enormously close to them and my grandmother in particular, um, just because she was a really, she was a very special woman. And, you know, she was in her, she was in a very quiet way. Like, you know, she, she never rose, you know, raised her voice and she just, but she was sort of the one, like it was really interesting, like that everyone kind of gravitated towards and we all wanted, you know, to hear what she had to say and to hear her opinion and to get her approval and to get her blessing. And, and like she really was that kind of idea of like the matriarch, but like in such a gentle, like kind way. And I think that, you know, she, she died in January of 2019. And it was very quick, you know, she I've been brought into hospital with a stomach um, issue. And, you know, it's funny because she hated, she, she would never complain. You know, she honestly, her leg would nearly want to be hanging off before she'd even agreed to go into the doctor. You know, that sort of generation of, of Irish women. And I think we probably should have known that she was very sick when she agreed to go in. Um, but she, you know, they, I think she went in on the Saturday and then by the Monday they were saying, look, you know, there's, there's really, or by the Tuesday, sorry, they were saying there's no, this is this is it really you know um and it was just you know we were sitting with her and she was she looked she was she was getting quite you know I think it was actually very interesting because you could tell she was getting a bit 
frightened and I, I think I would like if I was lying in a hospital bed and all of a sudden all of my family were like standing around me and like they all looked really teary you would think oh geez like this is because no one said to her you know like you know you're you're, you're dying you know it was like this will be very peaceful and very quiet but you know you could tell she was getting a little bit nervous and and you know and then she she kept you know, she had an oxygen mask on and she kept pulling at the oxygen mask and she kept saying you know like I just want to go home I just want to go home and you know when she she kind of gradually I suppose just I suppose kind of went into a coma I suppose would be the word but that she wasn't being you know because they didn't have anything on her to keep her alive at this point but she really she was such a fighter you know even at that point like they said she's going to be the dead within like 24 hours and we were like okay <laughs> And like by the Friday, we were nearly like, I mean, is this ever like this? She's not on any ventilator. Like, you know, we, they were getting a bit like, we're not quite sure what's happening here. Like, you know, this is, we don't know like how she's managed this. But I think, you know, we were, we were sort of taking shifts going back and forth and, you know, you'd go home for like, uh, you know, which is about an hour's drive and you know, you'd go home, you'd sleep for two hours and have a shower and then, you know, you'd go back up. And, um, and I think I knew it was very strange. I said to my dad, um, I said, you know, I, I think I'm I'm going to be with her, you know. Um, and he said, "Why?" And I said, "I just have this feeling." I said, "I just feel like I will be able to do this for her in a way that I think that everyone else was so sad and really didn't want her to go. Like you could tell that they were." And I think I just felt like, you know, what if I'm alone with her, it'll be an opportunity to tell her, like, you can go. You don't have to stay. You know, this is. It, everyone is okay you've done your best you know it's 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 fine for you to leave and I think sometimes people need to hear that you know um, especially someone like that I think who had spent so much of her life putting other people first and taking care of other people and making sure that other people felt comfortable and safe and I just think I wanted to to do that for her um so yes yeah, so I sat with her and I you know I held her hand and I sang to her um maybe that was why she went because she was like I can't listen to this singing for like another second here but um uh and then yeah it's like you know half six that morning she I could just tell you know her breathing just started to slow and um it was like it was devastating it was I was not that I was surprised by how sad I was because from the moment that I really understood what like death meant I was scared of losing my granny like in a, you know not in a weird way I wasn't scared of losing my parents or I wasn't like I was really scared of it like I remember asking her when I was a child I said you know like I don't want you to die you know I I, I just you have to promise me you know like I've seen it like um what is it team America you know it's like promise me you'll never die um and she she you know she bent down and she said you know the the Lord brings us home in his own time um and she said everyone dies but you know that it won't be for a very long time um and I think it was just this unbelievable sense of loss and I think you could tell almost people were a little bit taken aback by it it's like you know she was your grandmother she was 85 you know she was sick you know this is kind of you know I don't think you're allowed the same sort of grief but I think there was so much tied up in in her as a person I think it was my childhood it was the loss of even the house it was the loss of that garden it was the you know just all of those memories and it just felt like I just I, I can't it was just this incredible like sense of grief that like it took me about I would say six months before I could go like a day without crying at least once um but it was interesting you know writing this book because 
I had been planning it for six months um, and then I had started writing in uh, January 2019 and then three weeks later she died and I just couldn't do anything for about a month afterwards and then I sort of sat back down with it and I was really panicked at that point because I thought shit I'm so behind schedule like I uh, uh, shit you know that kind of we are really like getting really anxious <laughs> and I, it was so strange because as soon as I started writing it just like I've never written something so quickly I've never written something with so much confidence I've never and maybe that's why it's my favorite as well because just the experience of writing it felt so smooth and I think when someone dies, you know, you, you, you kind of grasp at like anything, you know, you want to believe that they're in a rainbow or it's a robin or, you know, and, and I think there's nothing wrong with that because I think it's, you just want some sort of sense of comfort that there is a life after this or they're with you in some way or they're, they haven't completely gone. Um, and I think for me, it was this sense of comfort and like, I feel like she's sort of at my back, you know, just her hand is on my shoulder. She definitely probably wouldn't have approved of any of what I was writing, but I felt like she was kind of there anyway, you know. Um, so it was a great, it was a great comfort to me. Oh, that's yeah, so wow. special. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's so lovely to hear. I just that's it is so just lovely. wonderful. Oh, and I think you. you're right. There's something about there's something about your grandparents that I think because from when you're really little, you understand that they're older than your parents and that I don't know something in us we just know that we get them for less time and you never want your grandparents to die and you never you know you never know what's going to happen but for as long as we have them we love them it's been lovely hearing about her because she just sounds like such a wonderful woman and I did see on Instagram, I think you shared a picture of her roses mm -hmm. and mentioned that the rose garden and the way that um, Helen's mum looks up to the sun as well is sort of, sort of a kind of in memory of her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I noticed that whenever I was like, writing a garden in a book all of them like I think even in asking for it there's a mention of like monkey puzzle trees like it it just it was always her garden I think because her garden was sort of like home to me because she loved the garden she was she was a terrible cook and she hated cleaning um but she loved gardening and she loved baking um and um she so I, I think you know when it came to this garden I think and Keelan had these memories of her mother and her mother's garden it just I couldn't it couldn't have been anyone else's garden um I think it just that was just the way it had to come out yeah actually on baking as well I have to mention that when we went to Ireland on holiday we fell in love with soda bread oh yeah. and oh my god the mentions of that and and the mentions of the island outsiders so is it um joe's parents who have come to the island yes. and are still decades later trying to perfect their soda bread recipe <laughs> i was like this is that duck's still trying to work out how to make it <laughs> well it's one of the things i remember when i moved to america and i was like oh my god they just cannot do bread here and i think it's like when you like we do really good bread really good butter you know like those kind of things so um it's yeah so it's just those things that I just I love a good soda bread and actually during lockdown this has been you know because I know everyone sort of took up baking but the one thing that I have kept is that I have made brown bread every week and it's so easy and sort of comforting and I haven't I haven't done my granny's recipe because hers involved a lot of kneading so I've just done sort of like a mix into the bowl into the into the oven um but there's something very nice about I don't know like that sense of nourishing yourself 
um, and you know feeding yourself and feeding yourself well and creating that food yourself and um, that I think as I've gotten older has become more important to me um, so I don't know self-care like you know that's such a cliche at this point but you know we'll, we'll do it yeah. yeah it is and I mean soda bread is yeah it's delicious I loved that every meal we had just extra bread yeah. and I mean <laughs> being being a like a boy who he does a very physical job he comes home and eats like 10 sandwiches before dinner he loves bread and the fact that like just accepted that you would get this extra bread with your food he's like this is the best country in the world <laughs> I love that we don't have the weather but we have the bread so that should be like fall to Ireland's new so- slogan come to Ireland the bread is amazing the bread. <laughs> But also the breathtaking views, like, oh, my goodness. Oh, no, it is stunning. And I think actually, I suppose, even in After the Silence, like, it was really important to me that, like, to kind of evoke that sense of wildness and the beauty in the landscape and just... Because to me, I think that's part of when you grow up somewhere like this. Like, you know, I've lived in cities and I've really enjoyed it, but I think a part of you will always crave that wildness. Like, a part of me will always think... I need to go to the sea. Like if I'm not feeling well or if I just, if something has happened, I'm like, I need to swim. I need to go to the beach. I need to just, and, and that really, it's, I, again, I think it's, there's this Irish uh, philosopher um, called John Moriarty. And he says that if uh, the wildness in me needs to see the wildness outside, otherwise it'll die. And there's a part of me, I think that just, uh, that really resonates with me. Um, and it was definitely something I wanted to, I suppose, evoke in this book where the island, it's a bit like that cliche, you know, with Sex in the City, where they're like, oh, New York is the fourth character. I'm like, well, I feel like in a shrew, like the island is is another character um, in After the Silence, like a really important character too. It, it really is, and it, and it literally is in some parts as well, like chiming in with the islanders, especially towards the end, which I, I really loved. But um, just on that idea of island as well, um, obviously each of your novels can be described as incredibly feminist and they dig deep into some really complex, complicated, um, uncomfortable territory. Um, you've obviously been big part of uh, campaigns in Ireland like Repeal the Eighth. I mean, I only knew about that because I followed you and that's how yeah. I, I heard about it in Australia. So that, um, that for people who don't know, when, that was re- the, when the Eighth Amendment was repealed, women had access to abortions in Ireland. And actually, like, fun fact, uh, Ireland did that before Queensland was able to decriminalize abortion so Mm. you know I think we were all at that point like if Ireland can do it why can't we um but there's a brilliant line in After the Silence that um you know Nessa the young woman um has grown up in a very different type of Ireland to Keelan um so as Australians it's hard for us to understand how deeply religion has impacted the culture of Ireland um What's your experience been like growing up, especially in that very, very big cultural shifts that have been taking place? Yeah, I mean, I just I would have been like Keelan, let's say that part of the book, um, which is 2009. Um, I'm trying to think what age I would have been in 2009. I would have been 24. Um, so I would have been closer to Nessa's age um, than Keelan's age at that point. Um, so I suppose for me, Nessa's experience would be would have been more my experience, which is a little bit confusing, I suppose, because, you know, you're growing like I was born in 85 um, and you don't really have any sort of awareness of 
social mores or um, the way in which uh, like socialization or conditioning of women um, as was tape you know generates itself or how that works um at that age you know you just sort of accept things very blindly um, and I suppose I grew up in a very liberal house you know my parents were very liberal leaning so I wasn't really being exposed to that at home I mean definitely in school and I suppose from an outside culture and obviously I was being brought up as a Catholic and getting my communion and I was very very religious you know like I wanted to be a nun like when I was nine like really genuinely was like this is I think something that I would love to do um and like I had my little missile and my bible stories and like was really really into it um and then I think what was really interesting is in the 90s there was just this massive like cultural shift where it felt like I was Ireland was really, there was this massive awakening. Um, and I think so much of that was predicated on uh, the sex abuse scandals that were coming um, out about the Catholic Church. And it was just this massive like exodus from the church where people were furious, you know, that this had been happening for so long. And that as was to see how complicit um, uh, the church was in, in covering this up. And then I suppose, you know, that if a priest had been abusive and then moving that priest to another diocese and again, endangering you know so many more children. I think it's that idea of, you know, you put the institution before the safety um, and well-being of children and um, that was really shocking so I think that there was this sense of like a rejection of a lot of that and then it was kind of odd in a way actually especially as a girl because it felt like it had gone from no sex to just all the sex you know it was just like Anne Summers was opening up and Playboy was here and there was condoms on sale and you know in, in pubs and, and I think that you're kind of you're kind of this very strange mixture of you know I suppose almost like the inherited trauma of what it would have been like to have grown up as a woman in, in a country that really did not allow women to be sexual and, and and that it wasn't just because a lot you know a lot of cultures and a lot of countries didn't allow women to be sexual but it wasn't like it it might have been a sin but it wasn't against the law you know like you wouldn't be put into homes or to laundries you know and uh, to I suppose atone for your sins in that way um so and then I think to sort of enter into this very hypersexualized um environment or culture that we were kind of shifting into in the late 90s early 2000s this was 2000 I was a teenager in 2000 like you know so like it was just a very unusual sort of way I think to to grow up and I mean I was lucky again that my parents brought us to mass you know but like not reluctantly but you know they were they my I had my mother had two uncles who were priests so she was a bit like you know I think maybe other people were slightly in awe of priests but I suppose if you have family members who are priests she was a bit like yeah yeah grand whatever you know so it was a very sort of a much more kind of a, a casual sort of approach to it like my dad would have been very spiritual but it would have also felt like you know if we go to the beach for a walk and really feel in the presence of God that's just the same as going for ma to mass but I think that like when you grow up in Ireland particularly at that time you are being given very mixed messages um, and particularly around sexuality and female sexuality. Um, and then I think with abortion not being legal and I think that understanding that the state and the church were sort of conspiring to, to, to control your reproductive choices. Um, but I wasn't surprised. I mean, when I wasn't surprised that repeal 
like passed and I wasn't surprised when um, gay marriage uh, was legalized because I think that actually the only people who were surprised were people who don't live in Ireland um, and who had this sense of Ireland as being this very old-fashioned uh, country that was run by the priests and actually anyone who has lived in Ireland will tell you that, that that hasn't been the case since the 80s or the 90s so I think for the rest of us it was just yeah we'll see that yeah yeah and I think it's really like trying to I suppose for us now it's very much like okay moving forward how do we continue to unpick the church's influence you know particularly let's say in our schools that's a big that's a big problem um because you know I mean I went to an excellent school an all-girls school very academic um you know but also great opportunities in art and in drama and sport you know it was a really really great school and I feel very lucky to have gone to that um I feel lucky to have got, you know, had a free education and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, it's the only school for girls um, in my town and it's Catholic. So there wouldn't have been any other options if you were not, if you were an atheist or if your parents were Muslim or if your parents were Jewish or if your parents were Protestant. Um, this would have been the school um, that you would have gone to. Um, and I suppose the ethos of that school means that you know, we didn't have any sex education. Um, we had someone come in uh, to speak to us um, when we were in Leaving Cert, which is our final year here, to talk to us about uh, chastity um, and staying virgins um, until we were married and like really shaming sort of things around, I suppose, like that if you had sex that it meant that you were like that you were you weren't as good or there was a part of you that I suppose had been not broken but sort of that was less worthy in a way and I mean to be fair to us it was 2003 and we were all like this is absolute bullshit you know like <laughs> we were just kind of laughing at it and most of us I would say maybe 50% or 60% had lost their virginity anyway so we sort of thought it was hilarious so it wasn't that we were sitting there going oh my god I can't believe I've had sex you know I'm never going to meet someone I'm never going to get married I am you know just a piece of trash now you know but again I suppose looking back at it it's 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 strange it's strange to look back and think that this was the only sex education that we received um and yeah so I think really and you know sex education is still very patchy um in Ireland and in Irish schools and I think a lot of that is to do because uh so many of the schools are still uh run um by you know they have a catholic um ethos um so so yes i think that's going to be the next big thing really is detail, you know untangling um the the influence that the church has um, on uh, education of our young people but in general would i say that ireland is a i don't know i mean i'm reading this excellent book at the moment um it's a proof so it's not out yet but it's by a, a woman called ellen coyne who would be one of our like best journalists here and did such incredible work um on repeal the eighth um, and she's talking about how that she wants to return to the Catholic Church, how it was a really important part of her childhood and how she doesn't see why a church that is supposed to be based on empathy and compassion and love for, you know, your fellow person, why that should be over taken by right wing forces. Um, and she said the problem is, is that all the good people all the people who do believe in empathy and compassion or not all of them but many of them have left the church because they're so disappointed in their attitude towards 
LGBTQ issues or the misogyny and um, the sex abuse scandals and so that she really wants to be as was a part of like reforming the church from the inside and I honestly have no idea if that's possible with an institution as as old and as sort of archaic as this one but it's been a really interesting experience actually just reading it because I was also someone whose Catholicism and faith was incredibly important to them and um, and it is sad in a way to feel like you have to let go of that sense of community and that sort of that sense of faith maybe um because you know because of I suppose really antiquated um ways of just existing within that structure um so I don't know I mean I'm 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 interested to see sort of where what hypothesis she comes to um by by the end of it yeah this like you know what is like a modern catholic when for most people their grandparents probably still got my grandparents still go to church all the time my parents were met at like youth group at their church you know we used to go to church all the time when I was younger and then by the time we were in high school it was like Christmas and Easter but I suppose you know what I think is what I think is interesting is if you think about repeal or you think about the same-sex marriage referendum here is that like those were passed by like 66 and 64 percent so the majority of people who are practicing Catholics voted yes for repeal and voted yes for um, same-sex marriage so actually I think even as you said what does a modern Catholic look like maybe not quite what we're picturing either no probably not see I think that that sounds it's fascinating to me too coming from like Caitlin and I seeing the um same-sex marriage postal vote debacle in Australia Mm. and the campaign in Queensland to decriminalize abortion like to us it I think from the outside, it looked like Ireland was fighting a lot of stuff and there was a lot of things to fight. But now that like from from your perspective, it actually looks like, you know, Australia was the more backward one. We were the ones who mm. had more. It, it was a lot closer on both of those counts and there seemed to be a lot more of a fight, yet we didn't have this united front of people who wanted change and it just mm. it's that, that it blows my mind because we were looking at that going oh wow if Ireland can do it you know mm. we're so behind but actually you're a lot you know more mm. united yeah. than, what, than what we were and it was a lot more divisive in Australia yeah I do think I will say that Ireland in general is like very progressive in lots of ways and I also think the main thing with Irish people is that I do think that we've sort of come to a point where it's like if this doesn't affect me then you just do you do you know and and I think that was a a major thing for most people that they were like look I wouldn't get an abortion or I don't think I would get an abortion and I don't necessarily agree with it but I and this is my perspective like you know I'm very pro people's choice and, and and abortion is often absolutely the right choice. But I know from a lot of people that I was speaking to that were like, I don't know if I agree with abortion, but it's not my right to choose what someone else does with their body and their life. And I was like, that's the whole point. It's just like having enough empathy to know that whatever, like that your choices and your opinions shouldn't dictate what someone else does with their body um and I think that was that was really interesting to sort of see I think that kind of attitude coming up time and time again where you have people on either side who are very vocal and actually the the, the there's this huge like quantity of people in the middle who are like I just don't care just you live your life the way you want to and they're the people that you want to vote 
because they're the ones who were who are going to choose, you know who are going to decide it yeah that's what we all be like yeah do whatever you yeah. want i'll do whatever i want yeah as long as you're not hurting other people like oh my goodness. yeah like yeah just please just oh gosh yeah i wish australia had been a little bit more open like that but um it's fascinating to hear that and to hear someone who's grown up in that so thank you for sharing that with no us. of course thank you so much for you know giving me a chance to kind of like wax lyrically about my opinions <laughs> No, we love it. And I guess, you know, we have talked about some pretty heavy things throughout this chat and lots of opinions. It's been really great. Um, but maybe to end on a little bit of a lighter note, <laughs> um, you had lots of snippets of Irish in After the Silence. So another language question from me. Uh, would you mind sharing with us one of your favourite Irish words? Okay. I mean, well, firstly, like the Irish in it, a very good friend of mine, Treylock, uh, Treylock Abukla, which is just the most Irish name ever. Um, he is a native Irish speaker. Um, so he, like, uh, I would be texting him saying, is this the right way to say this? How do I say this? And then he proofread the, um, the last copy for me just to make sure everything was right. And it's really reawakened something in me because I'm actually starting um, evening classes in Irish um, uh, at the end of this month because my Irish is so poor now. Like, I've completely forgotten it all from school. And it's such a beautiful language and it, I suppose it's that sense of it, we need to keep it alive you know you, we, we don't want it to die and um, but I think a word that I love and it doesn't really have like a direct English translation like a to plomos or a plomoser so like if you were saying oh don't be plomosing me it would mean like that they're kind of bullshitting you, but in a in in a in a really sycophantic way. So let's say if I got like a terrible haircut and like it's clearly fucking terrible, right? And you meet I someone. Mean, I'm talking like Claire on Fleabag here, like yes, yes exactly. Oh, so, brilliant reference. Oh, good job. So I meet, let's say I meet some, my friend, and I say, "Oh my god, this haircut is awful," and she'd say, "Oh, I love it," and I'd be like, "Okay, stop plumbing me." I've met you today. I look like a pencil and I have a meeting in an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like, don't plumb off me. It's terrible. And um, so I, I love that. Uh, I love that word. So there you go. Oh, that is I'm ex I hope that you share some of your um your lessons and stuff on your Instagram stories. Now you're back on there as well. Like once you I start will. your classes, yeah. you'll have to you'll have to keep us all updated on it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so oh, much that's... for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for being so generous with your time as well. We really appreciate it. And like, it's just, yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Okay, um, well, my partner is actually in control of my Twitter account, um, but um, it's Onilo, um, O-N-E-I-L-L-L-O um, on Twitter, um, and then it's Onilu, so it's O-N-E-I-L-L-L-L-O-U on Twitter. See, I put these up before I became a writer, and now I'm like, oh, I wish I had chosen something that was easier to explain when I'm on podcasts, but there's three L's in, in both of them, um, so I'm, uh, he's in charge of my Twitter, but I'm pretty active on that Instagram. So find me there and buy the book, buy the book. Everyone needs yes. to buy the book. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm -hmm.